Good morning again, church. It's been great to hear from some of you online here. You know, the last time we attempted something like this and we were interacting with people via chat, uh, via chat and text, people were texting in really helpful comments like, Pastor, your fly is down. So I checked before I came up. I think we're good to go. This is a place at which normally we would have a kids program running downstairs and hopefully your, your kids, if you're together as a family, are enjoying this time. If they are in front of the TV with you, here's a game you could try. They're doing it all over YouTube. You can play the how many times does the speaker touch his face while he's on video game and keep a running tally of that. As, uh, as we've noted, we're continuing our journey through through Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And you might ask, well, why are you doing that now of all times? If you've driven past the church at all in the past few days, you've seen this message on our signboard, clean hands, clear heads, open hearts. We know we'll get through that. Admittedly, those words aren't mine. They come from a favorite TV show, Friday Night Lights. But uh, they do encapsulate what the public response is to this crisis But we have a deeper response as well. And we want to make sure that we keep ourselves tethered to Jesus. And what better way to do that than keeping ourselves well anchored in his words? The Sermon on the Mount is meant to address the two big questions in life. The first one Jesus speaks about is, what is the good life? The word blessed really is the good life. When we say God bless you, what we're saying is we want God's very best for you. And then he goes on to describe what a person who is living that life looks like. What is a good person? And in these days where people are scrambling around trying to understand their role in the world, what does it mean to be good in the midst of a crisis? Jesus deals with a lot of real-world issues like like fear, like anger, like the place of, uh, of relationship, of lying and deceit. Let's start with this question. Let's back it up just a little bit. When is it that you think little children are first able to lie? I used to think the answer to that question was as soon as they can speak, but it turns out it's actually earlier than even that. No kidding. There was a study done at the University of the Sacred Heart in Tokyo that examined infants, and before they could even learn to talk, before they could speak a word, they learned to cry not when they were distressed, but in order to fake their parents out in order to getting some attention when they wanted it. And when you fall for that, when you reach down and hug them, they're laughing at you inside their deceptive little six-month-old souls. As children grow up, as they learn to use words, they become capable of lying. And they're pretty bad at it, at least at first. You can picture the image of one of your kids or grandkids with chocolate smeared all over their face and cookie crumbs all over their shirt saying, no, no, (laughs) honest, I didn't eat one of those freshly baked cookies. Where is it that our kids learn to lie like that? They learn it from big people. The most famous study in deception in our day found that the majority of adults will lie two or three times in any 10-minute conversation. We lie about our motives. We lie about why we're late. We lie because, well, because we don't want to get caught in what we really said. We cheat on our taxes. We fudge our expense accounts. We, we doctor up our resumes. We lie to our spouses, and we lie to our children, and, 
and we lie to our bosses. We even lie when we're playing our games. Uh, you can write me down for a five on that last hole. <laughs> it's such an interesting sort of thing, isn't it? Put me down for a five. I really got a six, but that number makes me feel bad about myself. I'd like to have had a four, but that feels like too much of a stretch. And I'd have to admit I'm a big fat liar. Five, five is like the Goldilocks of lies. It's, it's not too big. It's not too small. It's just kind of right. It's the human condition. We want to speak the truth, but we're prepared to lie just a little bit if it's necessary. It's like the little Sunday school girl who said, and you have this captivating quote in your notes, that a lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in times of trouble. We lie to get stuff. We lie to sell stuff. We lie to impress people. We lie to get out of trouble. We even lie at church. And all over our culture, even these days, in politics, in the media, in fake news. Spin and deceit has become such a problem that the Oxford Dictionary of the Year just a couple of years ago was post-truth. Post-truth. Or if you want to flip it around, this is the age of deceit. One researcher said that the number one finding in surveying people about lying is that people lie about how much they lie. And God knows all about this. Stop to think about it for a second. Every lie that we tell is as ridiculous to God as the little kid with chocolate smeared all over his face and cookie crumbs all over their shirt. Hey, Adam, what's that you've been eating? Uh, Nothing, Lord, he says, with apple juice dripping down his cheek. Uh, It was the woman, it was the serpent. We're given this telling little insight very early in Jesus' ministry. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Flip with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 2, in verse 24. John 2, 24 says this descriptively, that Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. Nobody needed to tell, to tell Jesus about human nature. In other words, you can fool You can fool some of the people all the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time. But you can never fool Jesus. And any time we lie, I think we look as ridiculous to God as as one of those kids with cookie crumbs all over their shirt. So we get to this section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking all about truth-telling. And it's really, it's a fascinating text. Because you remember... When he talked about anger, he goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, don't murder. Same thing with sexuality. You've heard it said, don't be involved in an adulterous relationship. And we expect with this issue of truth-telling, he'll go back to the Ten Commandments again. You've heard it said, don't bear false witness. But he doesn't. He begins in a very different place. He goes here back to a different section of the Old Testament. Let's read the text. Again, in your Bibles, flip with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, 
Do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You, you read those words for the first time and you think, well, what is Jesus going on about this? Talk about swearing by heaven. You think, well, I've never sworn by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by my head. Though I have changed my hair color from white to black or black to white. But uh, am I doing anything that would stand in the way of this teaching? And sometimes people take teachings like this, they take them very mechanically. For example, there are people who will not take an oath of office. They will not testify in court. They won't do anything that requires oath-taking. I want to suggest to you here that Jesus' primary concern is not about oaths. Remember, this whole section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to get us beyond an adherence just to rule-following, as if passing a checklist of morally appropriate behavior is the path to righteousness. He's trying to drill down deeper to understand his concern here. Let's go back to little kids again. We all lie. Little kids lie. What is it that we do when we have to make sure that people are going to believe me? Well, we invent little promises. And kids get really elaborate with them. I promise you I'm telling the truth, but that's not enough. So we add variations to convince people about our sincerity. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. You have to believe me. If you don't, you're going to have to look at me and it'll be your fault for not believing me. Every culture has its own problems with lying. That's why every culture has its own version of oaths. But generally, an oath involves invoking something sacred. May the gods deal with me ever so severely if I'm not telling the truth. And even today, people, we make oaths like that. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by all that's holy. I swear on a stack of Bibles. In the ancient world, the people of Israel were told when they make an oath to make it in the name of the one true God. These words are from Deuteronomy in chapter 6. It says, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Often they would acknowledge God's presence They would do it by raising their hand. This again is from the Old Testament. Abraham said to Sodom with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, to God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. Even to this day, you go into a courtroom and often you'll be asked to place your right hand on a Bible and then you raise it and you say, I'm going to swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, a devout Jewish person would not speak the name of God. It was considered too sacred, too holy. So to make their oath, they would substitute in something else, something like heaven or, or Jerusalem. But it's the same kind of an idea. So that's the backdrop. And Jesus is going to get to the very heart of the problem with the oath system. The problem's not oaths. The problem is that we don't tell the truth. A lot of times we don't tell the truth and then we wind up using pressure and guilt and spin and some song and dance 
in order to try and prove our sincerity. I promise, I promise this time, this time I'm telling the truth. Jesus understood the reason we use oaths. I swear, I promise, it's the gospel truth. We, use, we do it because we're so desperate to have other people believe what we want them to believe so that they will do what we want them to do. Instead of simply saying, here's the information, you decide. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. We feel like we have to exert all this added pressure. What I'm saying is the truth honestly. And whereas the Old Testament condemns lying through the use of oaths, people picked up on that and said, well, if I use the oath in a kind of roundabout way and embed something in there, but go around and lead deceitful lives outside of the practicing of oaths, that's fine. It's almost like oaths were a method of truth-telling with training wheels on. And Jesus said, I'm here now. The kingdom of God is here now. It's time for the training wheels to come off. It's a kingdom of love, and love means that I will honor you with the truth because you are one of God's precious creations. I won't try and pressure you. I won't try and deceive you. I won't try and manipulate you. It's just simply, yes, it's like this. No, it's like that. And I'm going to honor your capacity to decide because I love you, and I love you more even than my desire to get my own way. In fact, I've surrendered that. I've surrendered my way, my will. I've surrendered, surrendered it to God, to God's kingdom. And we've been praying together week by week through this series. God, your kingdom come. So what does that all mean? You'll see this little summary in your notes. It means that you can tell someone the truth without loving them. But you can never really love someone without telling them the truth. You can tell someone the truth without loving them, but you can never really love them without telling them the truth. I read this week someone who said that the secret to truth-telling is to determine ahead of time that you're going to tell the truth no matter what. Actually, that's not the secret. The secret lies far deeper than that. And we're going to come to the secret and we're going to do it through experimenting with a story. I want to spend the last few minutes of our message looking at how this plays out in the life of a biblical character. And by the way, if you're starting to feel really guilty about this whole subject of truth-telling and you're feeling guilt and shame, you might actually be encouraged to know that you're in great company. The Bible is a book of liars from beginning to end. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Aaron, Isaac, Rebecca, uh, David, Samson, Ananias, Sapphira, they're all in the Bible, but maybe the most spectacular liar of all of them, like the Mount Everest of liars, is the man on whom Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm going to have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew. In chapter 26. This is the night before Jesus died. He'd warned the disciples that they would all disown him. And Peter replies, this is verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus responds to him, pushing back, says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. 
Do you think, you think Peter was sincere when he said that? I do. I think he probably had tears in his eyes. That's how we get. We imagine ourselves being a martyr for the cause we believe in. We're so convinced of our own sincerity. He predetermined that he would tell the truth no matter what. Let's see how that works out for Peter. A few hours later, Jesus is on trial. Peter's sitting there in the courtyard. He's as close to Jesus as he dares to get, but a servant girl sees Jesus there claims that she'd seen him with Jesus. This is, in, this is in verses 34 and 35. She follow ahead, and let's look down at um, verse 70. It says, but he denied it. He denied it before everyone who was watching. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Notice he doesn't say, I've never followed Jesus. The lie isn't quite that blunt at this point. He says simply, I, I just don't know what you're talking about. And maybe that was the truth, or, or maybe that was a lie that he could get his head around at that point. You see, if you get really good at lying, you can rationalize it while you're doing it. And you can even get offended when somebody accuses you of lying, even though deep down inside, you know you're doing it. So here's the question as we reach this point in Peter's story. How does Peter go from I'm ready to die for this to I'm ready to lie for this? See, deciding not to lie isn't enough. There are many other things when it comes to life in the kingdom. The foundation for truth-telling is that I die to myself so that I can live in the care and safety of God. I will trust Him to watch out for me no matter what happens. Incidentally, that's also the foundation for care. It's why Christians for centuries have rushed into the epidemics to provide care instead of running away from them. It's because we know that when we die to ourselves, we can live in the care and safety of God. If I believe, on the other hand, that I have to watch out for myself because nobody else will, I will always keep lying in the toolkit as one of the things that I can pull out when it's necessary. But it's only when I trust that there is a greater reality at work in my life that I'm able to lay down that burden and live for a truth bigger than me. So I'm going to invite you this week, maybe today, to start in some small ways, in some small things. Actually, this is so small, it's, it's quite embarrassing, but it's in my life. My family know it. They're watching, so I'll just acknowledge it. I mentioned golf earlier. I'm really not much of a golfer at all. But my family love to play games. And I love to let my family play games. I buy games for them to play. I just don't play much. Why? Because I cheat. I cheat a lot. I cheat relentlessly. I cheat knowing that I'm going to get caught. I sabotage the game so that I don't have to deal with the fallout when I lose. (laughs) So, remember the basic prayer of Jesus' kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I know we're going to be playing some games this week, family. I'm going to be praying before I roll the dice. I know it sounds goofy, but it's where I live. Thy kingdom come, Lord, roll the dice. Go directly to jail. 
Thy kingdom come, Lord, roll the dice. Oh, park place, great. Two hotels on it. Really, God, is that your will? Really? (laughs) I know it's trivial. Why would I be attached to a game that I'm not even good at? But here's the thing about sin. Sin is often enmeshed in things that are intensely trivial in our lives. That's where it gets its foothold. Our emotions get attached to things that are embarrassingly trivial, to achievements or appearances or getting away with things that in the end don't really matter. To be out there on a golf course and say, put me down for an October bogey, because I know that Jesus still loves me that I don't have to live in shame and hiding and deceit, that I can die to that part of myself, I can die to my score. There's a freedom in that. There's a grace. And so you pray, God, your kingdom come. Let me just lead you back into the story of Peter and, and then we'll draw this to a close. It's in the moments that we're most tempted to deceive that we discover where we have yet to die to ourselves. It's the hard lesson that Peter's learning here. He lies, and then there's this encounter. And he lies, and there's another one. We're told, and this is in verse 71, that he went out on the gateway where there was another servant girl who saw him and and said to the people there, hey, this fellow, this one was with Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting when you read the background for the text. Peter's body is reflecting now what's going on in his soul. He's fled the courtyard. He's getting further and further away from Jesus. He knows he's too close. He's in danger. He's going to have to answer questions. There's all kinds of research, you know, into how our bodies tend to betray our lies. When people lie, they tend to cover their mouth. Or they they wrap themselves tight. They cover up their core. Or maybe, <coughs> maybe they cough a little bit. Or they look away. There's all these tells. These tells that, that really indicate what's going on because lying fractures. It, it disintegrates the soul. Have a look at verse 72. Peter denied it again, this time with an oath saying, I don't know the man. Couldn't get them to believe him the first time. So this time, in order to get them to believe He swears out an oath. I promise. Cross my heart. I don't know the man. Now, we don't actually know the form the oath took. Maybe by heaven. Maybe by Jerusalem. Maybe God is my witness with my heart and soul. Hope to die. But this time the lie is more direct. This time it's not, I don't know what you're talking about. This time, I don't even know the man. That's how lying works, isn't it? It's easier to go further the second time. And even here, Peter can't bring himself to say the name Jesus. I don't know the man. Because you see, when I sin against you, it's hard for me to use your name. Because I have to see you as less than a person. A person with dignity and worth and value who has their own little kingdom that I'm disrupting and invading. The deceptive soul is always a divided soul. And the divide is not only inside It's between me and the people I'm lying to. Back to the text again, verse verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and they said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Peter was from Galilee. 
that was Hicktown in the ancient world. His accent betrayed him. Uh, even in our day, accents have kind of a hierarchy, don't they? And we make assumptions about people based on their accent. We see perhaps that a hillbilly accent is low. A person with a British accent, well, they get 15 bonus IQ points. They could read from the phone book, and we would think it was the height of intelligence. Now, for natives of the big city of Jerusalem, a Galilean accent was a sign that these were rednecks. Your accent gives you away, they said. You're a hick. You're from Hillbillyville, just like Jesus. And, and Peter feels like the noose is tightening around him. Verse 74. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Who's he cursing? Maybe he's cursing himself. May God strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. He knows he's not telling the truth. What does that say about his faith in God? Or maybe it's, God curse you. Why don't you just leave me alone? I swear on all that's sacred. I don't know him. I don't love him. I didn't follow him. I won't die for him. Or maybe, and this might be hard to believe, but the grammar of this passage actually suggests that Peter is cursing Jesus. God curse him. God strike him. If you want evidence that I don't know him, didn't follow him, didn't love him, here it is. I curse him. It's the God of his own skin. When we lie, we don't become atheists. We just change altars. Instead of worshiping at the altar of the living God, we start worshiping at the altar of our own pitiful self. And then it happens. A rooster crows. Verse 75 says, Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And this devastating line, he went outside and he wept bitterly. He's about as far away from Jesus now as he can get. Lying does that. And maybe, maybe in that moment he remembered what Jesus had said long ago. You've heard it said, Jesus taught. You've heard it said, don't break your oath, but I, I tell you this, don't swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. And anything beyond that comes from the evil one. He's a broken man. But it's not the end of Peter's story. Thank God it's not the end of Peter's story because because it means it's not the end of mine as well. And this is so beautiful. There's a scholar of the classics. His name is Eric Auerbach. He wrote that this story of Peter, of his tears could not be found anywhere else in any of the literature of the ancient world. Peter's not a king. He's not a soldier. He's not a subject that would have been found to be worthy of any well-bred person's sympathy in the ancient world. This is what Auerbach writes. It's amazing. He says, A scene like Peter's denial fits in no antique genre. It's too serious for comedy. It's too contemporary and everyday for tragedy. It's too politically low and insignificant for history. And it portrays something which neither the poets nor the historians of antiquity ever set out to portray. The birth of a spiritual movement in the depths 
of common fallen people. So what is it? What is this strange new world where the tears of a backwoods fisherman have become the occasion for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God? A kingdom that leaves Pontius Pilate and Herod the Great as nothing more than bit players sitting on the ash heap of history. What is it? It's the Beatitudes come to life. Blessed are those who weep. It's the upside-down kingdom of the inside-out world that Peter has come to be a part of. And Peter, from the depths of the bottom of that pit, is going to learn the lesson of grace. There's a tradition, you know, that, that for the rest of his life, any time Peter was speaking in public, if a heckler in the crowd wanted to throw him off his game, they'd crow like a rooster. But it was precisely in Peter's greatest failure that he received the greatest reminder of grace. Let me tell you how. After Jesus was crucified, when the women go to Jesus' tomb because an angel had told them, it said, he's not there, he's risen. This is what the angel says. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Mark 16, 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? Why the specific mention of this man? Hey, Peter, you big fat liar. God's not done with you. There's enough grace in the cross even for you. See, Jesus promises that when we live in the freedom of death to self, when we live in the power of forgiveness at the cross, we receive a kind of strength that we could never generate on our own. And then all of a sudden, we're not living under our own steam or on power. It's amazing. Peter would go on in his life to write, rid yourselves of all deceit. 1 Peter 2.1 Rid yourselves of all deceit. Folks, this week, as you're praying for everything else that clamors for your attention and for the intercession of God's people, would you pray that God helps you to grow in love so that you would actually want to honor people? You want to be so free that you don't need to give any song or dance or spin or deceit, no pressure, no manipulation. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Pray that from our leaders. Pray that for the spokespeople at the front of a microphone, in the middle of this epidemic. Let it be a time for truth and for grace. Trust God. Speak truth. Die to yourself and be free. Living the truth really works. Cross my heart. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your spirit knows no boundaries. It has never been confined to this room, to this church, or any church. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would be fully unleashed among the people who are watching and listening all across this city 
maybe in different cities as part of our nation, we pray for the wider ministry of your spirit. We lift up your leaders because we believe that those in leadership can be used by you. They're yours before they're ours. Make them agents of truth. God, speak truth through them. And in hundreds of small ways, would you set your church in motion this week? The campus may be closed, but the congregation is alive, love is moving, and the church will prevail. In the prevailing name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.